Someone at the National Security Agency could blatantly be paid a fee. Creative breach to basically mean any shady people are safe and free to take a peek. Look, I don't believe in evil, but I believe in greed or paranoia. Power hungry, that's abusive. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, and I'll hammer that home till they have to shoot me. I'll be happy to head down the boogies and bet that they're getting a good look at my cookies. Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Last week, we had McGill professor Gabriella Coleman on the show to talk about her wonderful new book, Hacker, Hoaxer, Whistleblower, Spy. We discussed Anonymous and its shift from pure trolling into activism, and we're not done yet because Gabriella is back again this week to discuss a different part of the book, talking more about things like the Snowden revelations, the level of surveillance that was revealed, and how those revelations may actually be a reason for some optimism. Once again, we'll start off with Gabriella reading uh, a bit from her book, and that will lead into a discussion with myself and Dennis Yang. So take it away. Well, we, with the help of people like Edward Snowden, the ex-NSA contractor who bore enormous risk in speaking out, managed to compel our governments to curb such abuses and in so doing restore our right to associate free of undue surveillance. The hurdles are gargantuan. The sanction channels for political change in the United States are frighteningly narrow. The technical architecture of the internet, wherein centralized corporate-controlled servers house most of our data, makes capture both trivially easily and ubiquitous. This technical scenario has been described by civil liberties lawyer Eben Moglen as a recipe for disaster, prompting him and other internet technologists like security expert Bruce Schneier to declare, quote, we need to figure out how to re-engineer the internet to prevent this kind of wholesale spying. Finally, as the ACLU staff technologist Chris Segoyan argues, so long as internet firms continue to, quote, monetize their users' private data, they can never adopt truly pro-user privacy policies. And yet a field which has seemed hopelessly desolate now resembles a fertile terrain. The politically engaged geek family continues to grow in size and political significance. It is constituted by various organizations and activists working with politicians, lawyers, journalists, and artists. Many emerge from the geeky quarters of the internet. There's Julian Assange, Brigitte jones Detour, Chelsea Manning, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Sarah Harrison, Tor Developers, Anonymous, Rise Up, Edward Snowden, and many more. The last two years have been singular. Never before have so many geeks and hackers wielded their keyboards for the sake of political expression, dissent, and direct action. That's great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and I think it's, it's, that's a really good lead-in because, you know, as someone who has watched this space and, and written about it for, you know, almost 20 years now, the last few years have been quite incredible and, and in a way that's almost impossible to describe because many of us have been really, really concerned about the privacy implications of what was going on and certainly what the government was doing, which we had no idea um, you know, the level to which they were doing it. Uh, and yet, every time people talked about these things and said we should be worried about these situations, um, you know, people would say, yeah, we should be worried, but then they would go back to doing exactly what they had done. And yet, since these revelations, we've seen companies actually taking privacy more seriously. 
Um, I don't know that it's quite reached the level of re-architecting the internet, as as Bruce Schneier was saying, but we're 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 starting to see aspects where the people who are responsible are taking it seriously. Is that have you seen that as well, or or what do you how you know how the, the part that that I do struggle with is how much of that is real and how much of it is just kind of for show in response to this. I like to think about this current moment where there has been a kind of dramatic upsurge in people caring about privacy and actually doing something to the free speech movement in the United States, where really the apex of that movement came in the 1960s with um, the Berkeley free speech protests uh, here in the Bay Area and also key uh, legal cases. But prior to that, there had been these kind of punctuated moments over the course of century of the century where people were, were fighting for free speech. Mm-hmm. And in a similar way, I think with privacy, though geeks and hackers have long cared about it, there have been, you know, some, there's been key legislation in the 1970s in the United States. This feels like this is the first kind of strong grassroots uh, coherence, like coherent movement that's emerged with mm-hmm. substance that can form the basis for change, if not now, at least in the future. And so it is a real difference, and it's hard to say when change will pan out, but prior to this moment, we really only had flickers, and this finally feels like a substantial fire that's burning around um, the question of privacy. One thing that's that's interesting to me, at least, is how much of that change... So there, there, are, sort of, there are a few different fronts where, where the change is... Um, is happening and, and where the fights are, are occurring. Um, and the two key fronts that I see, at least, are one is the legislative front and kind of, you know, trying to better protect our privacy and to rein in surveillance. Um, and those efforts, we've seen more progress there than ever. I mean, well, I guess probably since the 1970s. Um, and then, but still kind of limited. Uh, but then at the same time, the other front is, is just on the technology side, where you have the technologists who are able to encrypt more things, lock things down, take privacy seriously, build the tools that, um, that make sure that people's information is kept private and to you know, get those tools more widely adopted. And on that front, I think we're seeing much more you know, much more progress. You know, there's still plenty to go, but but a significant leap forward. And so what's interesting to me, and, and you know, I'd love to hear sort of your thoughts on it, is how much, how much is going to change just because enough techies have sort of stood up and say, that was ridiculous, and I'm not going to let that happen next time. That's exactly it. And, you know, one barometer of that change is I encrypt my mail to someone or receive encrypted mail about three, four times a week now, Mm -hmm. easily. And prior to the Snowden revelations, it was probably three times a year. (laughs) And that's, that's a big shift, you know, and I imagine it's even more so for other people. And geeks and hackers really understand privacy. 
um, whether it's, you know, many are system administrators and they have access to everyone's data. <laughs> so they were, they have a visceral sense, you know, and right. it didn't surprise me when I had heard Edward Snowden had experience being a system administrator. And one of, you know, the big problems is that the sort of base technology for cryptography encryption is pretty strong, but the usability is very yeah. weak. And yeah. in some ways, there was always a lot of bitching and moaning about mm -hmm. fixing it, but it seems like this moment finally has compelled groups to really start thinking about it. And then there have been a lot of traditional philanthropy organizations, um, Open Society, Ford Foundation, who are like, hey, maybe we should start investing in this. And that investment, I think, is incredibly important for the kind of grassroots technology realm as corporations are also moving, hopefully, towards stronger encryptions themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting, even though, I mean, even with the uh, initial attention paid to, you know, the importance of these things, we've seen, you know, I can think of two big cases, you know, really in the last year, um, where sort of the funding aspect of this, you know, came front, front and center. And the first was um, the vulnerability in OpenSSL, which suddenly got a lot of attention, and then you know, very quickly people realize, like, there's one guy who's working on it part-time, and yet it kind of secures, you know, half of the web or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly people were like, oh, geez, we have to fund it. And then the other was the one that just happened, you know, a few months ago or maybe a month ago at this point, which was um, the GPG, the guy who's working on the thing that most of us used, you know, if we're doing encrypted email, um, that most of us rely on. And it was just one guy who was working on it. It was basically, you know, had done a, tried to do a crowdfunding project that nobody funded. Uh, and there was an article written about it. And then suddenly, you know, everyone started donating. And, uh, um, you know, I forget exactly which companies, but a couple companies stepped in. Right. And, and I think maybe a foundation stepped in as well and basically said, we're going to fund this. And, and you begin to realize how much of these critical aspects of internet security and privacy have been totally reliant on, you know, individual volunteers. And yet these are, the, these are the pieces that when you look at the technologies that have actually stymied the NSA and other surveillance agencies, these are the ones that have been successful, not the, not the big ones from big companies that, that worked on, on different technology. Yeah, there's a couple of things you raise in um, your, your comments right now. First of all, there's a lot of real savvy journalists like mm -hmm. Julia Angwin yep. who report on this stuff. And again, just like free speech has been reported on by journalists uh, for an entire century, again, we're seeing now a critical mass around these issues with really smart journalists yeah. who are able to also you know, translate the kind of technical issues. The second thing is historically, you know, infrastructure has not been sexy to fund. <laughs> and I've, I've known a lot of independent hacker projects with the exception of Tor, which was always kind of government funded from the beginning, really struggle to get funding in the past. Now, all of a sudden, you know, it's very clear that infrastructure is necessary. And there is a kind of sexiness to it because it's part of these kind of dramatic stories. And then the last thing you mentioned is, you know, it is great if, let's just say, Apple moves to really include strong encryption. But in the end, we always need non-corporate tools as well. Uh, just because corporations um, are often cornered because they have, you know, certain relationships with the, with the government, sure. um, even when they're, you know, doing the best possible thing, 
And um, this is not to demonize them, but just a kind of reminder that it's really important that we continue to fund the kind of grassroots um, technology movement who have historically provided us with those tools and who I think can, you know, finish off the job if properly funded. Yeah. I mean, even even the case of like, I mean, you know, one of the other revelations, which I actually don't think was a Snowden revelation, was was the RSA basically agreeing to effectively backdoor a key technology and then declaring that the default for, for, for one of their, their things, which, you know, people trusted RSA. I mean, they were the big player. And, and you know, I, I don't know how much that is, you know, the, the, the reputation hit that the company took has really impacted their bottom line. I, I have no idea necessarily. But, um, you know, it certainly makes it clear that even when you think you can trust certain companies, I mean, most people can't quite tell. I mean, there have been rumors and people had sort of known about some of the RSA stuff, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, having at least third-party alternatives that are also open and audited um, you know, really, really is important. Um, and it's, it's interesting to see also beyond just even the supporting the hacking of these tools, we're, we're starting to see people supporting, you know, running audits, security audits on on the different technologies. Like, I mean, there was the whole, um, uh, what is it, the TrueCrypt, mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. The, the, where they were doing an audit, and then that sort of turned into a little bit of a mess also. But it's it's interesting, and I think really good to see a lot more people paying attention to these issues um, and I think it is, you know, it's a con- there's a combination of factors there, and certainly, you know, just having more attention paid to to these issues, having you know, um, a good journalists like Julia cover them and and others as well, and um, you know, actually actually leading to it. What what do you think? Um, I mean, it's sort of a general question, but you know, what do you think is necessary? as sort of a next step. Um, because even as, you know, maybe, you know, you and I will use encrypted email some of the time, um, you know, my parents still aren't going to do it. And, you know, um, lots of people are, aren't going to do it. But, you know, what, what is it going to take to get to that next level? Well, first, I'm not convinced that we need society-wide encryption. Sure. Um, I do think we need basically all journalists and lawyers and activists to be using it to the extent that, you know, you, you wash your hands after you go to the bathroom, <laughs> like th- these populations should all be using it as right. default. And mm-hmm. that would be a huge win. That would be a huge win because they're the ones who, um, you know, if they're being surveilled, it's particularly potent. And there's actually large numbers of journalists and uh, lawyers in these countries, right? Yeah. And so that's in some ways a, a huge first step. And then from there, we can kind of start thinking beyond that at some level. Um, and it is it is tough because despite the fact that, you know, there's huge numbers of geeks and hackers in the world, and I think that's quite interesting because they're very, you know... Uh, dogged in their thinking, very anti-authoritarian. I think, you know, the whole reason why we have leaks today and these sorts of projects is they've managed to retain 
forms of independence while they're very kind of privileged actors working for the corporate sector or, or the government, right? Mm-hmm. But this idea that, you know, digital natives exist and they're like really savvy with technology is not the case. And I'm always amazed in my classes where I ask people if they know what source code is, if they know what a server is, if they know what a system administrator is. And they look at me like very blankly going, (laughs) wasn't that a movie source code, you know, I think. (laughs) Um, And so there is a lot of digital literacy that has to happen first. And I think it's so important because, you know, as everything interfaces with computers, and uh, journalism interfaces with programming as there's this widespread surveillance. You know, young people do know, have to at least know about the, the issues. And I, I don't understand why we don't have, like, an internet class in high school. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which would be so fun. And they would dig it. And it's yeah. so, so vital. Yeah. I mean, we had a, an earlier podcast where we actually were talking about, like, different sort of that question about, you know, what people yeah. should should learn in high school. And it's tricky though, right? Because it's easy to say there should be like a, you know, like an internet 101, but you know, what, what do you include in that class? Right. But, you know, I, I agree, um, to some extent, but I, you know, I kind of wonder. Or you can make it part of, uh, there's, um, what, what's it called? Social history in, in high school. The kind of yeah, so, social, social studies. Social, social studies. studies. Yes. So one, you know, just like you do many parts of the world, right? Like one semester or um, you know half a semester can yeah. be internet studies, and there's really interesting readings that are yeah. short yeah. that get at these issues, right? Start, start with a week. Ex- exactly. Yeah, yeah. Two weeks. Two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so you know, back on Mike's question though, like, is this something that more of society should be concerned with? Um, I mean. You know, you said before that lawyers and certain activists should definitely be be encrypting their email, but taking it from the other side, which is if it were essentially just something that everyone did, it wouldn't necessarily feel as as weird, right? Yeah, and there is, you know, today on Twitter, um, something flew by my screen where I was like, oh, that was really smart, you know, and it was something like someone said, I'm more worried about parents who use surveillance technologies on their kids because yeah. then they get like habituated to it, thinking that's right. okay. And I, I am very concerned about people who know that they're being surveilled because I do think it changes how you act and think in the world. Absolutely. And, and given, you know, that's a reality. And then I do think more kids know more than ever the implications. They may not think about it very deeply, but they know kind of that Facebook collects this data and there's this thing going on with the government and then they might kind of shift practices. And it's true that, you know, having the encryption technology out there and trying to kind of create places where they adopt them is one of the pedagogical ways to go, you know, maybe this is not okay, right? right. Because how to signal that message yeah. in the context of ubiquitous parental, governmental, and right. corporate surveillance is, it is important. Yeah, there's this sort of interesting thing, like, you know, some people have this impression or belief that, um, you know, kids today don't care about privacy. Like that, that you know, sort of that concept has gone around. And you know, somebody pointed out to me recently, or I was at a conference and I heard them speak, and they said, you know, that's not true. It's yeah. it's just that the threat model for kids is different. Rather than the government that they're afraid of, they're afraid of their parents joining Facebook and seeing what they do, and yep. that's why things like Snapchat, yep. Yik-yak and, and Yik Yak, and and things like that suddenly became very popular. And then 
you know, people are jumping on those things and now they're suddenly discovering also that just because Snapchat says they're going to, you know, delete your, your messages, that doesn't really mean it. And so they're, they're getting this very real lesson in, in privacy and that hopefully they'll understand these issues at a deeper level, you know, later on. But, but I think the fact that they're growing up thinking about these types of issues, like I equate it to like, I couldn't ever think about driving around in a car without a seatbelt. Right. But generations before that was something that you did. And right now, you know, just thinking about it gives me chills. (laughs) Um, And I think that kids today that are growing up, like they don't realize they're thinking about Snapchat in a privacy kind of way. But when they when they grow up and they start communicating, it'll be something that is natural to them. I think that that's the kind of generational shift that perhaps it's going to take. Right. Right. And that's, you know, the the kind of crossroads, because you're completely right. You know, Dana Boyd's work, it's complicated shows that they care mm-hmm. about privacy, yeah. but right under the right conditions, that will be hammered out of them, you right. know, yeah. if there is no alternative. And so this is where I guess the, maybe the, the corporate players really do have a role in so far as if they make easy to use kind of encryption that really, right. and they do so with, with integrity, right. can really be a force for good because they're the ones reaching everyone, right? Yeah. You know, Tor and PGP, you're like, high school student is, is probably not going <laughs> to use it, right? Yeah. yeah, that seems unlikely. Yeah. yeah, except for those that read Cory Doctorow, right. Little the, Brother, the, the, right? <laughs> the extreme ones, I'm sure yeah. there, there will be some, like, uh, I'm sure the way we all were in high school. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was all over encryption <laughs> in high school. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But uh, going back, going back even to 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 your book, I mean, how much of a role do you actually think that you know, sort of the hacktivist community and anonymous and and folks like that, how much of a role do you think they play in in that world as well, in terms of making more people aware of these things, you know, getting them to recognize the importance, you know, because you know, there's one there's there's one thing to just sort of be lashing out and attacking and to, you know, or to stage protests in, in, in one way, right? And, and Anonymous has shown the ability to do those things. But, you know, could you sort of, you know, turn their power towards, you know, I don't know if it's quite an education campaign, but convincing people that these things are important in a different way? Geeks and hackers of very different sorts, I think, are absolutely the central actors and in very different ways. And what I do find interesting about Anonymous is look at the name, look at the iconography, like mm-hmm. it symbolically embodies that those very <laughs> values. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's really important and fascinating because I think also for some people, privacy is a little harder to kind of pin down as to what it is and why it matters. And for Anonymous, it's really this living ethic where they're committed to it because they know the kind of implications for loss of democracy um, but they're also really into the, you know, they're very in tune with the fact that we live in a day and age um, where there's so much pressure to kind of bear the self and, you know, get recognition for the individual. And that has implications for a kind of self-surveillance as well. And they're all about like, no, mute the self, do it for the, the power <laughs> of the group. And it's, I think, so key to have spaces like this that exist and it's one reason why a lot of geeks who are not particularly technical, because you don't need to, to to participate in Anonymous, were, were attracted to it. Now, of course, this kind of expressive domain can only go so far. But, 
you know, the crypto party, uh, which was mm -hmm. an idea hatched by Asher Wolf. Uh, she's a really talented journalist, and she was a friend of Anonymous. Mm -hmm. you know, it was brilliant. It was really, really brilliant. And um, they you know, don't necessarily attract hundreds of people, but they usually attract 50 to 60 people. There's one going on today in, in Oakland and the Omni Commons. Mm -hmm. And it's a really kind of good model to reach you know, both the kind of professionals like journalists, but also some, some members of the public yeah. uh, as well. And what nourished that were all the geeks and hackers who've been kind of beating this drum for, you know, a decade or yeah. two. Even, even Snowden took part in a crypto party he, before. He did. <laughs> I mean, I just love that. You yeah. know what I mean? That was excellent. And, um, and you know, they, they do suffer a little bit from like, how do you go beyond the, again, a kind of geeky, self-inclined population to go. Um, but I do know, for example, and I do this, like I'm going to have my, uh, my class do a crypto training, you know, yeah. and the, the educational context really matter and more academics mm -hmm. are using this stuff. And then we are in a perfect position to, you know, host events in the universities and reach a much wider swath of people as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's, that's really exciting. And it's, I mean, you know, for people who haven't, you know, sort of embraced the, you know, just at least learning about it and, and testing out the, the kind of encryption, it, there's something kind of fun about it once you, once you actually get it set up. And, and my favorite thing is actually uh, when I send an encrypted email where the entire message is something like, okay, <laughs> I'm like, I encrypted that. And the NSA is going to keep that for like 20 years. You're and if they crack it, like, you know, okay. But like, I, I, you know, just the fact that I've done that is, 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 kind, of, is kind of interesting. Um, I know we're, we're running out of time, but do um, you have any sort of final thoughts or, or messages that, that you want uh, people listening, this, listening to this to, to think about in terms of, you know, where these things are going, um, you know, what, what they should be doing? Yeah, you know, maybe... Going back to the opening, which is about mm -hmm. a pessimism that has some room for optimism, mm -hmm. uh, the history of free software, I think, can actually teach us why we should maybe be hopeful. When Richard Stallman um, came up with the idea of free software in 1984, he started to develop tools, and then there was you know, some legal regimes that were developed. But for the first 15 years of free software, it was marginal. It was mm -hmm. esoteric, and yes, you know, geeks were loving their GCC <laughs> and Emacs and their tools, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but it was really treated like a madman's dream. And then, you know, Linus comes around, creates a different style of development with a Linux project, and boom, it takes off. And this is just a reminder that as we're working towards something, if there's not like massive yields and dividends you know, the first couple of years, that doesn't mean it's, it's lost. So I think the important thing is to continue doing it. Like if it goes away, that's really a problem. Right. But we're in a good position where, again, there's some critical mass. And I, I do suspect there will be some yields so long as there's ongoing funding for these projects. We may not see it for another five, seven years, 
but in the grand scheme of things, that's actually a pretty short period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, what's, what's amazing about these things is exactly the way you described, where it's like all these different pieces are developed and they don't necessarily catch on, but they sort of build on top of each other. And it's, it, you know, going back to the things that we discussed before, where it is kind of ongoing experimentation as well. And something will click and suddenly take off. And, you know, it's important to keep that experimentation going to figure out what it is that really clicks. Exactly. Just stay outraged. <laughs> exactly. And have fun developing. Yeah. I don't think either of those things should be that difficult. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> uh, once again, th- uh, thank you for joining us. Um, and uh, for listeners, again, if you haven't uh, read the book, please go out and get it. Check it out. It's it's really a very interesting read. And, um, and uh, th- thanks again. It's my pleasure. Watching you, watching me, watching you, watching me And between us there's a lot to see We'd probably rather not have I'm watching you, watching me Wondering to what degree Your interception fringe my intellectual property